Good morning. Welcome to Westbridge Church. My name is Jeremiah. I'm one of the pastors here, and it's awesome to have you with us. I want to say hello to those of you joining us in our online campus. Thanks for joining us there. And uh, if you have small children you prefer to keep with you during the service, I'd encourage you to use one of our parent viewing rooms. I want to say hello to those of you joining us in there and anybody watching in our cafe. And uh, before we jump in this morning, real quick, I want to mention after every service, we do this five and five. Uh, If it's been a while since uh, and you want to have some questions about church, if it's your first time here, you want to learn more about Westbridge, uh, if you've been coming for several weeks or several months or a couple years and you still have questions about Westbridge, uh, 5 and 5 is right after the service, right down front. I'll be hanging out and we're going to cover five things about Westbridge Church in five minutes or less. And so I'd love to connect with you face-to-face, answer any questions, and uh, walk you through, hey, here's who we are. It's probably the fastest, easiest way to start to get connected. And what's cool is uh, we'll provide those clear next steps and you get to determine the pace. And so I'd encourage you to join us for that. Uh, in, uh, right after service. Now, we have been in this series, uh, Asking for a Friend. We're wrapping it up today. And asking for a friend is this phrase that you use when you want uh, some information, but you kind of are asking it sort of tongue-in-cheek, like, I've got something I want to ask, but I don't really want you to know that I'm asking, so it's kind of like asking for a friend. And we've talked about several big topics over the last several weeks. I'd encourage you, if you missed any of these, or if these are of specific interest to you, uh, you can find them all online and uh, go back and check them out. But we've talked about how can anybody believe in resurrection? And what is the validity around that? And uh, that was the first week. Second week, uh, how, do I, how do I make sense of the Bible? Where did it come from? And how was it put together? And why should I read it? And you know, all of that kind of stuff. And then uh, we talked about uh, week three, how could a loving God allow suffering? Or maybe you've heard it phrased like this, why do bad things happen to good people? That's a big question for a lot of people who are wrestling through, uh, can I put my trust in God? Because if God's the kind of God who just, you know, makes people suffer. It's not really a God you want to follow. And then uh, the week four, we talked about faith and doubt. And it was this idea that can I have faith and doubt simultaneously? And that, you know, I was always taught if you have any doubt, then it's really hampering your faith. And I've come to realize doubt is a big step in the faith process. That uh, my faith grows because my doubts lead me to ask great questions. And that I can bring those doubts and God's not threatened by them. And then last week, we talked about faith in science. And uh, if you missed last week, again, I'd encourage you to check that out because uh, a lot of people ask this question, doesn't science contradict faith? Doesn't science actually uh, make faith uh, something that is, doesn't it disprove faith? And the truth is, as you dive into science, more and more and more, science is actually faith-affirming. It actually points to intelligent design and a creator. And so this is where we've been so far in this series. And uh, today, we're going to wrap it up. Uh, there are several other questions that we've got. I mean, it, literally, if we just did a Q&A, we could probably do a 92-week series. Uh, but... We tried to grab like these big, big questions that were a lot of objections to faith. And so today, uh, maybe a somewhat controversial topic. I I hope it's not too controversial, but it's the topic that often causes people to sort of stiff arm faith in God and keep God at an arm's distance because we don't fully understand the answer to this question oftentimes. And it's a really big question and it's an important question. How could a loving God send people to hell? That's a question that for a lot of people, they go, "If, if this is a loving God, then, and he sends people to hell, that's not a God that I want anything to do with. And that's a, that's a fair question and one that should be addressed. And so first, uh, let me say, as we attempt to approach this topic today and, and talk about this, we're going to approach it with a lot of humility and a lot of open-handedness. 
Okay, here's what I mean by that. I'm going to give you my best interpretation of the scriptures that we have, but you need to know the scriptures are not 100% clear on this, and scholars have been debating this for centuries. So we're not going to solve it today. I just want you to know that. Like, you may leave emotionally dissatisfied, but we're just going, this is my best interpretation of the verses that we have. Uh, Secondly, uh, where scripture is more clear, I will be clear. Uh, Third, I want you to know that... um, I wish we could ignore this topic altogether. I really do. Uh, hell is not a fun topic to talk about at all. I, did, I, I, had this, I wasn't like this week going, this is going to be amazing. I, I know everybody wants to talk about hell. It's going to be so fun. The problem is Jesus talked about it. Jesus had some things to say about it. And so my, my sort of uh, challenge to each of us is, would you be willing to enter into this conversation, and would you be open to the idea that we might not land where you think? Whatever your preconceived idea was, we might not land there, and would you be willing to have the humility to say, I could be wrong? Because that's where I'm going. I'm going, this is my best interpretations of the verses that we have, and I'm just telling you, I could be wrong. But this is my best interpretation that I have. So let's jump in. How could a loving God send people to hell? This is an important question for sure. But the way that we tend to ask the question already poses a lot of problems for us. If you've ever been to Valley Fair, if you've ever been to the State Fair, if you've ever been to St. Michael Days and Nights, uh, you have the opportunity to do something uh, at any of those settings called a caricature. And a caricature is something where it's either a drawing of you or you and your spouse or you and a friend. And it's basically an artist who draws you. It's a portrait of you, a drawing of you, but it's a drawing that really highlights all of your features in an extreme way for comedic effect. And so you get the picture back and you're kind of like, oh, it's so cute and it's kind of funny. It kind of looks like you, but it's like your head is disproportionate to your body and, you know, your smile is massive and your ears are tiny and your chin is all stretched out. And it's just a different, and it depicts you, but it's a little different than you. Let me give you an example today. This is a picture of Clint Eastwood. This is a photograph. This is not a caricature. This is an actual photograph of the actor Clint Eastwood. And uh, you can just see that this is a normal photograph. These are his features. Now, somebody drew a caricature based off of this photo, and it looks like this. And you can see that clearly both pictures depict the same person. In fact, when you look at the caricature, you can go, that's clearly Clint Eastwood, right? I mean, it's obviously him. And yet, it's a little different. It's not an exact replica. In fact, you'd say it kind of looks like him. It definitely depicts him, but it's also nothing like him because his jaw is massively stretched out and his ears are tiny and his, you know, squint is too squinty. And it's like, okay, that's definitely Clint Eastwood, but yet it's different. And and it's amazing. This is why this is important. These images are depicting the same person, but they're doing it in drastically different ways. And they're coming to very different conclusions about what this person looks like. And when we ask certain questions of God, whether we realize it or not, sometimes we end up painting a caricature of God based on our own perceptions, based on our own feelings, and the way we ask the question. And this question, how could a loving God send people to hell, tends to paint a caricature of God, and it tends to paint a caricature of people as well. And let's start with the question first. The, the, the first part of this question is, how could a loving God do this? How could a loving God send people to hell? 
If, if God is loving, surely he shouldn't make any kinds of judgments or deal with sin in that way. How could God do this? How could God separate people from him? The problem with this is it pits God's love against any of, other, any, any of God's other characteristics. And so if God is going to be loving, he can't do anything else. So who is this God that we're asking about? Is God, if God is loving, we assume he, wouldn't, he would never judge. And yet, here's what we discover in the scriptures, that God is loving and God is holy. And, and that's a little difficult for us to wrap our minds around. From a human, our, like finite human existence, it's so much easier for us to wrap our minds around the concept of God's love than it is for us to wrap our minds around the concept of God's holiness. And yet, he is both loving and holy. And what does it mean that God is holy? The word holy actually means to be set apart specifically for God that he's set apart from sin. It means that uh, we often say this in a, in a terrible way. I heard this phrase growing up, that God can't be in the presence of sin. And yet here I see Jesus all the time hanging out with simple people. I'm like, this just doesn't add up. And, and again, some of the way that we phrase things creates a distorted picture of the God that we're dealing with. I've heard this so many times in my life. God cannot be in the presence of sin. The problem is this. When we phrase it that way, that God can't be in the presence of sin, we turn God into Superman and sin into his kryptonite. You know, Superman is all powerful, right? And he can just run through concrete and stop trains and bullets bounce off of his chest. He has no weakness. And so all of a sudden kryptonite shows up and he just, he cowers and has to run away and flee. And we do the same thing with God and sin, that God is perfect and holy, and suddenly when sin shows up, his holiness becomes a weakness, and he gets all squeamish, and he has to flee because God can't be in the presence of sin. But when we say it that way, it's not an accurate picture of, of God that's revealed in Jesus. Jesus constantly was in the presence of sinful people, and it didn't bother him. It wasn't some kind of kryptonite. But it creates this caricature of God. And when we say that God cannot be in the presence of sin, here's what we really mean. Sin can't survive in the presence of a powerful and holy God. That's a much more accurate description. That in the presence of a holy God, anything sinful would be consumed, including sinful humans. That, that God's holiness is so great that he deals with sin. Now, an example of this is in the Hebrew scriptures when Moses asks God to show him his full glory. God, I want to see your full glory. And God says, you can't or you'll die. Not because I'm going to kill you. He's just, you can't handle it right now. And so what happens is God actually shows Moses his goodness. He, he, he hides him away and lets him see a reflection of him, but not his full glory. And even from that experience, Moses walks away from that and is like glowing radiantly that the people are terrified of him. It's, it's absolutely amazing. And when sinful humans encounter and experience even a little bit of the holiness of God, there is an immediate reaction. Here's a couple examples of this. Uh, one from the Old Testament, one from the New Testament. The Old Testament, the Hebrew scriptures, one from the eyewitness accounts of Jesus. Uh, a guy named Isaiah was a prophet in the Hebrew scriptures and gave messages to the nation of Israel on God's behalf. And in one uh, uh, part of his writing, he describes a vision that he has of beings that are worshiping God. And here's what he writes. He says this, It was in the year of King Uzziah, uh, in the year King Uzziah died, that I saw the Lord. He was sitting on a lofty throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Attending him were mighty seraphim, which is a, uh, a word for angel-type beings, each having six wings. With two wings, they covered their faces. With two wings, they covered their feet. And with two, they flew. 
They were calling out to each other, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of heaven's armies. The whole earth is filled with his glory. Their voices shook the temple to its foundations and the entire building was filled with smoke. Then I said, it's all over. I am doomed for I am a sinful man. What? Why is that Isaiah's reaction? So Isaiah sees God's holiness and he doesn't say, wow, that's so awesome. He says, woe is me. And there's something about us as human beings, when we clearly see God in his appropriate position in the universe, we also recognize our own. We recognize I don't measure up to the fullness of God and his standard. And the same thing happens to Peter. Peter encounters Jesus. And Peter is a fisherman. He's been fishing all night. They didn't catch anything. And Jesus says, hey, Peter, let's go fishing. And Peter is thinking, Jesus, you know nothing about fishing. It's the middle of the day. We fished all night. We haven't caught anything. But all right, let's go. And they go fishing. And Jesus says, hey, let's cast the nets on the other side of the boat. And I'm sure there's, Peter's just like rolling his eyes like this guy knows nothing about fishing. Okay, whatever. Cast his nets on the other side. And they catch so many fish that the boat starts to sink. Their partners come over with their boat. Their boat fills up with so many fish, their boat starts to sink. And, and Peter should have been like this. Oh my gosh, you've unlocked the secret to fishing. Like, you're hired, dude. This is amazing. Instead, we read about this reaction, and this is what happens. When Simon Peter realized what had happened, he fell to his knees before Jesus and said, Oh Lord, please leave me. I'm such a sinful man. What a weird reaction. But there's something about us as human beings that when we recognize God and we recognize where we fall short, there's this realization of who we are. And it happens with Isaiah and it happens with Peter. And there's a lot of pushback in our culture to the idea that God would make any type of judgment against sinful people, that God would judge anything. And yet when we cling to the love of God and we discard the holiness of God and we say, I don't want a God that judges anything or a God that has justice or that side of things is not, it's uncomfortable to talk about. And I agree, it is uncomfortable to talk about. But if we discard that, and we just go, God is love, which means he's just, everything is just, you know, just rainbows and fairy tales. We're not being consistent with who God claims to be, even by our own standard. Because think about it like this. As human beings, we long for justice. If somebody commits a crime against you, you want it to be made right. You long for it to be made right. If someone commits a crime against someone that you love, you want the perpetrator to be held accountable. There's something about that that seems right for you and for me. And when we think about the injustice and the things that go on around the world, we long for those things to be set right. There's something in us that longs for that. When we see people or systems that are taken advantage of, what do we want from our own earthly judges? We want them to judge fairly. We want them to, to be just. Why would we expect anything less from the God who created the universe? Is it possible our desire for justice is because we're created in the image of a God who is perfectly just? while at the same time he loves? Could it be that in his love, he does hold people accountable? And, and the creation narrative tells us when God saw the world that he created, it was good. He creates, and after all through the creation process, God looked at what he created, and he says, it's good. And then cre he creates human beings, and he says, it's very good. He creates men and women, and he says, it's very good. And then what is God to do? How should he respond when he sees? He sees what sin is doing to a good world that he loves and cares for and good people that he loves and cares for. 
Doesn't it make sense then that it is out of his love and not in spite of his love that he responds to sin and what it's doing to the creation that he loves and to the people that he loves? Wouldn't he respond? And when you think about people around the world, outside of the United States of America, I mean, we tend to live a somewhat sheltered life here compared to a lot of the rest of the world. When they think of divine justice, they hold that as a comfort because of the injustices that have been committed against them. Isn't God morally right and at the same time morally loving when he responds to injustice and sin in the world and the people that he created? He would be an indifferent and unloving God if he did nothing. Well, this is a question I've often asked myself. Why can't God just forgive everyone and just wipe the slate clean? Can't God just do that? Yes, he could. He could just forgive everyone with no consequences. But to do that, he would have to unlovingly ignore the cries of those who have been victimized and those who have been oppressed in order to wipe clean the slate of the victimizers and the oppressors. You can think about it like this. Uh, When one of my kids does something to another one of my kids to hurt them. It's not loving for me as a dad to ignore the cries of the one who was hurt so that I don't offend the one who did the hurting. It's not loving to say, well, listen, I I know they hurt you, but I don't want to offend them, so I'm just going to ignore that. Is that cool with you? That wouldn't go over very well. But instead, a a loving father would say, no, I'm going to work to make it right with both parties. And when we look at the scriptures, they have no issue with God's love and God's holiness going hand in hand. They're not opposed to each other. In fact, they complement each other. They work in harmony with each other. The psalmist writes this in Psalm 33. He loves whatever is just and good. And there's something about us that loves what is just and good. We want justice. The unfailing love of the Lord fills the earth. His love fills the earth. And it is out of his love, not in spite of his love, that God deals with sin in sinful people. And he deals with sin in creation. And these are connected for the psalmist. They do not oppose each other. They work together. They complement each other. Now, that's just the first phrase of this question. How could a loving God send people to hell? Hopefully we understand that a loving God, uh, as we walk through what love is, that a loving God deals with sin in broken people and in broken uh, creation, that he wants to restore and he wants to renew. But here's the next part of the question. Okay, well, how could a loving God do that to us? Like, have we really been so bad that we deserve judgment? Have we really messed things up so much that we deserve hell? That's a big question. But the question shows us a lot about how we see ourselves and how we see sin. And here's what we come to realize, that we take sin less seriously than Jesus does. Like when you think about how Jesus talks about sin, he talks about sin a lot differently than we tend to talk about sin. And sin is not a word that we like to use. That's just a, that's kind of a, that feels harsh. But the truth is, sin is just missing the mark. Sin says, I've missed the mark. And I don't even need a Bible verse to tell me that I've missed the mark. There are things that I've done that I wish I hadn't done. There are things that I've done unintentionally that I look back and I go, I wish I hadn't done that and I wish I hadn't said that. And that falls short of my own standard, let alone God's. And then there are things I look back at that I did intentionally. And I'm like, I wish I hadn't done that. I wish I hadn't said that. But it wasn't like I accidentally stumbled into that. Like I did that on purpose. And you probably have those things in your life. And by our own standards, we don't even measure up to our own standards. We've missed the mark with our own standard, let alone God's. And that's just what sin is. It's just missing the mark. And in Matthew's eyewitness account, Jesus begins his ministry. And he's, he begins by, uh, with this sermon that's often referred to as the Sermon on the Mount. And in this, he connects sin and hell. 
It's kind of fascinating because in our modern era, we tend to think of hell as like this sort of archaic and antiquated idea that is maybe found in the Old Testament, but, you know, Jesus comes and sets the record straight. And in fact, it's just the opposite. In ancient Israel, they didn't have a concept or a construct for an afterlife. For them, it was just serve God as best as you can with the years you have on this planet. They didn't think about it. In fact, hell was not a construct for them or a concept for them. And Jesus is the one who first introduces the idea of an eternal perspective. And listen to what he says when he talks about sin. He says this, you've heard that our ancestors were told, you must not murder. If you commit murder, you are subject to judgment. But I say, if you're even angry with someone, you're subject to judgment. If you call someone an idiot, you're in danger of being brought before the court. And if you curse someone, you are in danger of the fires of hell. Pretty intense from Jesus. Jesus moves past the comparisons that we tend to make in our hearts. And he moves past the outward activity to the inner motives of our hearts. He isn't interested in just removing some weeds. He wants to cut out the root of sin that gets into our hearts. And he, so he's, his teaching warns us, you know those terrible people that you compare yourselves to to make yourself feel better? God, at least I don't murder people. At least I don't curse people. Jesus says, look, those murderers, those who curse others, you have that same thing in your heart as well. Jesus would say, I'm telling you, if you even are angry at someone, if you let that fester inside of you, it's the same thing. That, that, that root is the exact same thing that, find, uh, that, that is found in the hearts of people who curse people and murder people. It's just gone a little bit further than yours has gone. But it's the same root. And so Jesus moves past that. He's saying sin is very serious. It can, it can harm you. It can hurt you. A few verses later, he gives another example. He says this, so if your eye, even your good eye, I don't even know what that means. I don't know if that's a common thing. I don't know if there's like a bunch of people with a patch. I like, I don't know if he's talking to pirates. I don't know what's going on. If your eye, even if it's your good eye, he's basically saying, look, let's just make it the worst case scenario. Let's just say you've already lost an eye and you still only have one eye left. Even then, he says, if it causes you to lust, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your hand, even your stronger hand, causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. Now, again, context matters. So Jesus is not advocating for self-mutilation. All right? As far as we can tell, we don't read anything in the scriptures about a bunch of one-armed, one-eyed people wandering around Jerusalem. All right? But he's using hyperbole to make a point that sin should be taken seriously. That when I miss the mark, it has a, an impact on my life. And I should do something about that. And let's set aside some of the modern day imagery that we have of hell that they're kind of conjured up in our world today, right? The, the pitchfork and the fiery underground torture chamber. A lot of the images that we have about hell are just through such a cultural lens that there's a guy in a, you know, a red suit and horns and a pitchfork and he's playing ACDC backwards or Nickelback Forward. <laughs> but the word that Jesus uses is Gehenna. Okay, uh, hold on. What does that mean? What is Gehenna? Well, Gehenna is actually a very real place in Jesus' day. In fact, it was originally called the Valley of Hinnom. And the Valley of Hinnom was a place where other cultures uh, would actually sacrifice children to their gods. And if you were going to, if you served some deity and you didn't know where you stood with that deity and you wanted to make sure that you 
sort of, you know, incurred their favor and, and you sort of kept away their wrath, uh, you would offer these sacrifices and eventually you never knew where you stood. The gods never answered. So you would just keep offering sacrifices until eventually you'd offer your kids as sacrifices to make sure that, hey, better to offer my, my son or my daughter than for the whole civilization to be wiped out by this deity. And the Valley of Hinnom was the place where child sacrifices were offered to different uh, gods and deities. And so the Valley of Hinnom in Jesus' day is called Gehenna. It becomes this place. Now there's no longer child sacrifices going on in Jesus' day in the first century, but it's outside of the city of Jerusalem, outside of the, uh, the, the borders of the, of the city. And it's a place where they burned all of their trash and refuse. It's a place where they dump all of their sewage. It's a place where if you were on the outcast of society, if you were a leper, if you were a beggar, if you were someone who was, quote unquote, ceremonially unclean, to make sure that your impurity didn't rub off on others, you had to live outside of the city. And so there would be encampments there. There would be wild animals fighting over scraps of food. That's where you'd hear gnashing of teeth. And so we hear these things like, like uh, there's lots of worms that are living in those piles. So we hear scripture verses like where there's uh, gnashing of teeth and where the worm never dies. But Jesus is actually talking about a real place where the fires never go out because they're constantly burning their trash. This is the only way to get rid of it. And this is, the smell was terrible, the sight was disturbing, but it's clearly a place nobody would want to go to. And those who are outcasts from society live there. And so Jesus leverages this very real place to help his listeners understand the reality of hell. Hell being separation from God. And so they have a different image. When Jesus talks about the fires of hell, they would have instantly... Jesus talks about the, the fire that doesn't go out in Gehenna. He's talking about a real place. They're thinking, oh, Gehenna, we know where that is. We've seen it. We take our trash there. Why would we ever want to live there? In fact, the city of Jerusalem, the name Jerusalem, comes from two Hebrew words, Yerushalom, which means, uh, shalom means peace. But not just peace like, hey, shalom, shalom to you. Uh, it's, it's more than that. Peace is not just the absence of conflict or the absence of war. Shalom actually encompasses the, the flourishing and the wholeness that God desires for all of the world. And so Yerushalom actually means the, uh, the, the city of Shalom, the, the, the place of peace. And so to experience Gehenna outside means you're separated from the Shalom. You're separated from the flourishing and the wholeness that God wants for all of creation. And so what Jesus is saying is this, hell is separation from God. And when people try to paint a picture of hell like it's some kind of eternal physical fire and torture and torment, not only is that inconsistent with God's character, it's completely inconsistent with the main idea that Jesus is trying to communicate. See, it's inconsistent with God's character because God's goal is always, always, always restoration from sin, not punishment for sin. And if your viewpoint's God's just waiting for you to screw up so he can like strike you with lightning and send you to hell and he enjoys it, you've missed the entire message found in Jesus because that, none of that is found in the heart of Jesus. But secondly, it's inconsistent with the main idea that Jesus is trying to communicate because that our sin separates us from God. That's what Jesus is communicating. 
He's not talking about a literal place where people burn forever. He's saying, I want to paint a picture for you what it's like. There's this place called Shalom where, where the wholeness and flourishing that God desires for all of uh, creation is, 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 is found here. And then there's a place that's separated from all of that. And, and the best description I can give you is Gehenna. It's where the fire never dies and there's gnashing of teeth and there's weeping and there's the worm never dies. And it's just this place you wouldn't want to go. And it's separated from the wholeness and flourishing that God desires for all of creation. That's what Jesus talks about when he talks about hell. It's it's separated from God. And since God is good and God is love and God is light, to be separated from God is to be separated from all that is good and all that is love and all that is light. So to be separated from God is to experience death and anger and violence and darkness. Now, that doesn't mean it's a literal burning hell for all eternity. It simply means separation from the wholeness and peace and restoration from our own sin that Jesus came to offer us. And when I think about being separated from all that is good and all that is love and all that is light, that sounds like hell. And that's why so many people today, I mean, you could could describe the way that a lot of people live their lives as hell on earth because they're choosing to live separate from God and the goodness and the light and the love that he offers. And here's what we discover about God. In his love, God honors our choice. God has created you and created me to exist in loving community with him and with one another. And when we choose to walk away from that, when we choose to say, God, I want nothing to do with you. I don't want you to, I don't want to make you the center of my life. I don't want to, I just want to live life my way and pursue happiness the way I want to pursue happiness. And we miss the mark for what God created us for. God says, okay, I'll honor your decision. And so the reality is this, when we ask the question, how could a loving God send people to hell? It's a mischaracterization. It it creates a caricature of God because it's nothing to do with the real God that's found in Jesus. Because God doesn't send people anywhere. But he won't force relationship. When I was growing up, uh, we did a play at our church uh, called Heaven's Gates and Hell's Flames. Just a catchy title. It really rolls off the tongue, you know. And uh, uh, I I promise you, we will never be doing that here. Uh, But the whole goal of it was this. I mean, really, at the end of the day, it was this thing where you scared people into following Jesus. And so they would travel. It was huge in the 90s. I mean, uh, this is the 1990s. Sorry, 1900s back then. And... uh, and so this, is, this was huge. It was all around the country. This, this production company would come in and they would use people from your church as the actors. And then uh, you'd invite a bunch of people from your community. And then you would literally have scenes where people would die in various different ways. And then they find themselves in the afterlife. And then they discover if they made it to heaven or hell. And if they made it to heaven, then like this incredible music came on and all the lights went bright and like we covered the auditorium in tinfoil so that it would all be reflective and like, oh, heaven. And then you'd go to heaven. And then if you found out that you somehow didn't make it, then the lights would go dark and there'd be like strobe lights and paper mache flames would come up, you know, with like a fan and these demons would come and drag your soul to hell. And then at the end we'd go, so you choose. And people are like, I mean, I don't want to go to hell, so yeah, I guess. Let's, let's do the God thing, right? It's a horrible motivation for following Jesus. It's a really, really powerful short-term 
motivation. It's like, so, uh, so who here would love to go to hell? And everybody's like, no, I don't want to go to hell. That seems awful. You're like, okay, great. Well, your alternative is to, uh, you know, go with this Jesus guy. And it's such a bad motivation. Like, like fear is such a short-term motivation. It's like getting married to the first person that you meet because you're afraid to be alone. It's like, oh, I'm, let's just get married because at the end of the day, I'd rather be with you than face the alternative. Even worse than that, it's actually like a guy who uh, falls in love with a girl and is just like, man, she is everything that I can imagine my life being with. And, and uh, she, she actually brings the best parts of me out of me. And I want to build a life with her. And they're walking on the beach one day and, and he actually has a ring in his pocket. And he says, you know what? Everything about you just makes me want to be a better man. And I, I want to spend my life with you. And I, I, I love the relationship that we have. And he gets down on one knee and he says, I want you to marry me. And before you answer, I just want you to know that if you say no, you will live to regret it. <laughs> you're going to find yourself on your deathbed one day, and you're going to be filled with regret from the day that you said no to me. Now, hold on. Will you marry me? You're like, whoa, that's creepy. Now, she might say yes. Well, I don't think that's a great way to base your relationship. But that's what we do with God when we go, okay, uh, Hell is this place where you're going to burn forever and ever. Anybody want that? No, I don't want that. Okay, follow Jesus. It's a horrible motivation. But when you learn about who God is in the person of Jesus, what you discover is a God who created you, who loves you, and who is willing to put his own life on the line to deal with the sin that you and I experience. He never sends anyone to hell. His goal is never to punish. But... Neither does he force you to follow him and trust him. And so your own decisions to say no to God might cause you to find yourself separated from him. Here's what C.S. Lewis, who is a, a great uh, theologian in the last century, writes this. He says, there are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done. And those to whom God says in the end, thy will be done. Those who say, God, your will be done. Whatever you want, I'm in. And those to whom God says, whatever you want, I'll grant it. He won't force relationship. And heaven is an eternal place where Jesus and God and his love, his light is the center of everything. If you've decided, I don't want to make Jesus the center of my life. I don't want to make Jesus and his light and his love the pursuit of my life and the center of my life, then there's a really good chance you're probably not going to enjoy heaven. And God will not force you to, and he will honor your decision. And so this idea that God sends people to this torture chamber is such a caricature that really distorts who God is. The person that's found in Jesus is the God who longs for the shalom, the, the flourishing and wholeness of all of creation and all of mankind, all of humanity. And yet, because he is love, he will never coerce anyone. And if you ultimately decide, I, God, I want nothing to do with you, God will honor that request. And you may find yourself separated from God, which is the definition of hell. But it's not because God is sending anybody there. There's a great story Jesus tells that really captures this. And again, you have to understand, Jesus is a master storyteller and uses things, right? Like, like gouge out your eye and cut off your arm to make a point. And he tells this story, and it's 
again, and it goes to an extreme to make a point. So you have to understand what we're reading here, but Jesus often told parables, stories, in order to illustrate things that are happening in, in humanity, human dynamic, but he tells a story, of, a made-up story, to kind of make his point. Here's a story Jesus tells in Matthew chapter 22. It says, uh, Jesus is talking to a group of people. He says, the kingdom of heaven can be illustrated by the story of a king who prepared a great wedding feast for his son. When the banquet was ready, he sent his servants to notify those who were invited. But they all refused to come. So he sent other servants to tell them, the feast has been prepared. The bulls and fattened cattle have been killed and everything is ready. Come to the banquet. But the guests he had invited ignored them and went their own way. One to his farm, another to his business. Others seized his messengers and insulted them and killed them. The king was furious, and he sent out his army to destroy the murderers and burn their town. And he said to his servants, the wedding feast is ready, and the guests I invited aren't worthy of the honor. Now, go out to the street corners and invite everyone you see. So the servants brought in everyone they could find, good and bad alike. And the banquet hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to meet the guests, he noticed a man who wasn't wearing the proper clothes for a wedding. Friend, he asked, how is it that you're here without wedding clothes? But the man had no reply. Then the king said to his aides, bind his hands and feet and throw him into the outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Kind of an intense reaction. But what is Jesus doing? What is the, the picture that he's painting? He would tell these made-up stories in order to make a point about a larger truth. And in this story, the king invited people to a wedding banquet. But the original guests were too busy with their lives to accept the invitation. And ultimately, the king decides, then I'm going to invite everyone. Everyone is included. Everybody is invited. And so everybody gets an invitation. And it would have been very customary for a king who's doing a, holding a wedding to provide wedding clothes for the guests. And so as you arrive, not everyone who is invited, I mean, you're inviting everybody off the streets. Not everybody could afford the proper attire for the proceedings. And so it would have been customary for the king to say, I'm providing the wedding robes. I'm, every, when you show up, here's a wedding robe, here's a wedding robe, here's a wedding robe. And everybody can wear one because I've already incurred the cost. I've already covered the cost. All the guests had to do was clothe themselves with what the king requested. However, one of the guests wanted to experience the celebration of the banquet without following the king's request. He wanted to be in the party, but he didn't want to honor the king. And the clothing in the story is the righteousness that Jesus provides. He's already paid the cost. He's already done it through his work on the cross. We just have to accept it. In fact, the Apostle Paul would write it this way to a group of people in the first century in Galatia. He says, for you're all children of God through faith in Christ Jesus. And all who have been united with Christ in baptism have put on Christ like putting on new clothes. In fact, this is a metaphor that's used throughout the New Testament by Jesus' uh, eyewitnesses and the, the followers of Jesus in the first century would be this idea that when you come to Jesus, you're, you're putting on new clothes. And so now when God sees you, he, he doesn't see your sin or your past or your guilt. He, he sees you through the lens of this is who you are because you've accepted his invitation. And one of the major objections to faith that so many people have is that, okay, Christianity feels exclusive, it feels like you're saying that your way is the only way, and if, and if you don't believe all the things I believe, God's going to send you to hell. That's a horrible, horrible mischaracterization. First of all, uh, this is the, this is the uh, sort of language. How can followers of Jesus claim that their truth is the only truth? But the reality is, any faith claim is exclusive. Even to believe that there is no absolute truth is in itself an exclusive point of view about how you view truth. 
There was a panel uh, a couple of years ago by uh, a Christian pastor and a Muslim imam and a Jewish rabbi, and all three of them were on this panel being asked different religious questions, and the only thing that all three of them could agree on was that they could not all be right. That there had to be something, that, it, that somebody had to be wrong, because if truth is true, then they can't all, opposing points of view can't at the same time be true. But here's what's so fascinating about this way of thinking. According to the scriptures, the way of Jesus, while claiming to be true, is also the most radically inclusive version of any type of point of view. And once you dig beneath the surface, because everybody is invited, and nobody gets in on their own merits, and everybody gets in the same way. How incredibly inclusive is that? The king has invited everyone to the party and already paid for all the wedding clothes. The only stipulation is that you accept what he's already paid for. It doesn't get more inclusive than that. And if you refuse to accept that, then God honors your decision. If you don't want relationship with God and you deliberately choose to reject that offer, God says, okay, I will not force it on you. But it's the only way to the party. And I don't know what hell looks like or what it feels like or to what extent there's, you know, literal consciousness all, all I can say from this is, I can say with, with pretty near 100% certainty that it is not physical burning torment and torture. You don't find that anywhere in the scriptures. You don't find that anywhere in Jesus. You don't find that anywhere in God. What I can say is, I think there's a separation from God, that God honors that request. And, and all we do know is separation from God who created you and loves you and wants your life to flourish. And he wants his creation to flourish which means that he must deal with sin at some point because of what it does to his creation and what it does to his sons and daughters who he loves. Now, here's what's so amazing about this. Peter actually writes this to, in the first century. The Lord isn't really being slow about his promise, this promise to come back and, and deal ultimately with sin and renew and restore all of creation. The Lord isn't being slow about his promise, as some people think. No, he's being patient for your sake. He does not want anyone to be destroyed, but wants everyone to repent. God doesn't want anyone to be destroyed, not because God's doing the destroying, but because of the destruction that sin is bringing. And God wants to provide a way out. And so here's what I can say. Every objection that, we, that anyone has about this idea of hell is answered with the reality of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. Well, God, can't you just be loving? Yes, he is love. And it is out of his love that he sent Jesus into this world so that anyone who believes in him would not be eternally separated, would not be lost to God, would not perish, but would experience eternal life. And his holiness didn't keep him away from sinful people. Instead, he became human and continually touched sinful humans. And rather than being affected by their sin like some type of kryptonite, they were actually experiencing restoration from him. His power went into them. Well, God, can't you just deal with sin through some other judgment? Yes, he did that. In fact, he took your sin and my sin upon himself when he was nailed to the cross. Well, God, can't you just forgive everyone? Yes, because the death and resurrection of Jesus, your forgiveness has already been secured. He offers it to everyone. Well, God, can't you just see that we tried our best? Yes, God sees that. And yet, your best and my best isn't good enough to reach our own standards we set for ourselves, let alone God's standards. And Jesus clothes you with his righteousness and goodness, and he's already paid the price. So now when God looks at you, he doesn't see your sin, he doesn't see your guilt, he doesn't see your past, he doesn't see your shame. He sees someone covered in the, the new clothing of, of righteousness and forgiveness that Jesus offers. 
Well, God, can't you just do something miraculous to get our attention? Yes, that's exactly what he did when he sent Jesus into this world. He didn't send a messenger. He sent his only son. It wasn't a caricature. It was the perfect photographic picture of the real thing. Well, God, can't you just send somebody back from the dead so that we know it's true? Yes, that's exactly what Jesus did. He died. His body was laid in a tomb, and according to hundreds of eyewitnesses, he rose again. And now the offer is there for you and me. He invites you and me to be clothed with his righteousness, to be a part of his family. And it's not something you earn. It's not something you behave your way into. You don't church attend your way into it. You simply have to receive the free gift that God offers. And so I hope this helps us understand. God doesn't send people anywhere. Hell is not this uh, torture chamber. Hell is just separation from God. And it's something that we find ourselves in when we say no to God. And he honors that because he will not coerce or force relationship. But man, his heart is he's inviting. He's inviting. He'll never stop inviting. And if you want to say yes to that invitation, you can do that today. And all you have to do is say, I want that. And to say that, all you have to do is just agree with this prayer as we close. God, please forgive my sins. Forgive me for the times that I know I've missed the mark. I know I've walked away from you. I'm so grateful that you never walk away from me. You keep extending that invitation. So today I want to say yes. Make me your son. Make me your daughter. And then help me to put my trust in you and to follow you as best as I know how. Not so that I can be a part of your family, but because I already am. Help me to put on the, the, the clothing that you provide and just to live in this new identity that you've given. And God, I pray for every one of us. As we follow you, I pray that we have a clear picture of eternity, that you would bring that into focus for us, bring that into clarity for us, and that we would see it's, it's out of your love that you deal with sin, but you deal with it in a way that isn't punishment, but re restoration. And then, God, may we recognize that the way that you love us is the way that we are to love each other. So may your love for us cause us to love like you do. And may that love point people back to you. In Jesus' name, amen.